1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Give ear to God's holy word. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, uh, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, this afternoon, uh, we're, we're continuing our study. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks uh, and months, we've been going through the letter of 1 Timothy to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And we saw a few times now in, in 1 Timothy 3.16, he tells Timothy that what we call kind of the purpose statement of the book, why he wrote what he's writing. He's, he's telling us there why he wrote what he wrote about elders, the passage we're looking at now. And he says there that he's instructing Timothy and us as to, quote, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what this letter is about, what the part that we're looking at is about, is here he's telling us how things are to be done in the church and how things are to be put in good order according to God's will in the church. And so in this section in chapter 3, he spends a good portion of this letter showing us at least briefly the biblical qualifications for the offices of overseer or elder and the office of deacon. In previous weeks, we saw the first two qualifications for the office of overseer or elder. The first of those is a desire or an aspiration to that work. It's a sense of calling by God to that work that labor of ministry in verse 1. And in verse 2, he tells us that, that a man to be an elder must be above reproach or blameless. Now, we saw a couple weeks ago that to be above reproach doesn't mean that a man must have reached sinless perfection, for if that were the case, we could never find an elder, and every church would be without elders. Now, to be above reproach means to be, in some ways, it means to be free from scandalous sin. It means to be free from patterns of sin in his life that would hinder both his work in the church as well as his witness among outsiders and unbelievers. And to be above reproach basically means that an elder is able to be a good example for the rest of the flock to emulate. That's, that is a, uh, that is a big responsibility to shoulder for any pastor or elder or even a deacon. We have to be able to say, with good conscience, look look at our fellow church members and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul was able to say that, and every minister of the gospel in general must be able to say that in good conscience as well. We saw that being above reproach in a lot of ways, according to our text, it's kind of a summary of everything that follows. Paul says an elder must be above reproach, Everything that follows through to the end of verse 7 in some way is a summary of what that means in brief. 
So if you want to know what it looks like for a man, a prospective elder, to be above reproach, look at verses 2 through 7. All of those with one exception, that of the ability to teach, are all character qualities. They are all marks of a sanctified man, one in whom the Holy Spirit's work is evident. They are moral and ethical qualities worked in a man by the Holy Spirit. And what's the first one that he mentions? What's the first specific character trait that Paul mentions in our text? He says in verse 2 that an elder must be, quote, the husband of one wife. Now you could literally render that, kind of more literally render that, that an elder, an elder must be a one-woman man. Now this text has been understood and interpreted and, impl- and applied in a number of different ways. You know, if you were to, now that we have the, uh, the privilege of being able to have access to the internet and sermons from all over the world over, you know, how many decades they've been recorded, you know, if you were to pick ten evangelical, let's stick with that, evangelical Bible-believing sermons on this text, you might hear five or six different views on this particular part of our text. So I, I thought it seemed best that we spend some time looking at what this phrase does mean and what this phrase does not mean. Now, perhaps the first thing to notice here, it may seem obvious, but to some it's not, is that an elder must be a man. We didn't just see that in in the previous chapter, but Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 15, the passage right before the one that we're looking at this evening, he says there, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it's, it's not a coincidence that the very next thing Paul brings up that's in our text is the qualifications to be an elder. And one of those is to be the husband of one wife. There should be no question that Paul is saying that elders are to be men in the church. That's to be men that hold office in the church, but not just any men will do. An elder must be a sanctified man, one whose conduct is fitting for a Christian man, one whose conduct is consistent with his profession of faith in Christ. Now, what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? There have been many suggestions and different views on what this means and doesn't mean. One of them, some have said that this means that an overseer or an an elder simply must be a married man. I don't think this seems likely as the one who wrote this letter was not a married man. Paul the Apostle was not married. Paul here is certainly talking. What he's doing here is he's taking for granted the fact that most men in the church in his day as well as in ours will in fact be married. That's just the way it seems To go, there are some exceptions, but they're just that. They're exceptions, and they are rare. Most elders, I would say the vast majority of elders, will be married men, or at least will have been married at some time if they are widowers at some point. Interestingly enough, John Calvin notes that this requirement of being the husband of one wife, here in our text, he says that in some ways, this text refutes the Roman Catholic practice of requiring priests to take a vow of celibacy. This is what he writes. Paul says, And I do not entirely disagree with those who think that here the Holy Spirit was taking advanced measures against the devilish superstition about this subject that arose later. 
as if he had said bishops must not be compelled to celibacy, because marriage is a highly proper state for all believers. This would not demand that they must be married, but simply commend marriage as in no way inconsistent with the dignity of their office. If bishops or overseers or elders are commanded here to be the husband of one wife, then it follows that no church has the biblical grounds for forbidding marriage to the officers of the church. Secondly, others, including Calvin himself, have taught that when Paul says an elder must be the husband of one wife, that he primarily is forbidding the practice of polygamy. Now, that's certainly implied, but that would be, I think that would set a rather low bar, at least in our day, for Christian conduct, and I think that would have been a, I'm assuming that would have been a low bar even in Paul's day. Now, in the first century world among the heathen, the Gentiles, where Paul spent most of his time in ministry, Polygamy was not uncommon. All kinds of sexual immorality were no doubt very common in those societies that worshipped false gods of all kinds. And so Paul's words here in our text, they certainly do forbid polygamy, having more than one wife, as the rest of the scriptures teach as well. You know, there are Old Testament texts, maybe you're thinking of this as I'm mentioning it, There are some Old Testament examples of polygamy found in the scriptures. Think of Jacob, think of King David and Solomon. But all those Old Testament examples, none of those teach that this practice was acceptable. God used them in spite of this sin, but it was not acceptable before God. God, in fact, told, explicitly told the people through Moses that their future kings were forbidden from this. They were for, they were forbidden from multiplying unto themselves, he says, many horses or many wives or excessive silver and gold. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17. So when David and Solomon and others did what they did in that regard, they were, they were, they were going against the clear word of God instructing them to do otherwise. And so in this regard, as in all things, a Christian's conduct and even more so, an elder's conduct must be decidedly Christian and not pagan. And our marriages are one of the primary areas in which we live out our faith. That's probably why Paul puts it first in our text. That's probably why he placed such a high priority on an elder's marriage and family in this, in this passage. You know, some others have said that Paul here is teaching that an elder can only have ever been married once. This also doesn't seem very likely for a number of reasons. Are we to believe that Paul here forbids men from remarrying if they become widowers? Or if they do that, would he, would he bar such men from office? I don't believe the scriptures teach such a thing. That really can't be Paul's meaning, because in the same exact letter, later in this epistle in chapter 5, verse 14, what does Paul say there? He instructs younger widows to do what? To remarry. He encourages them to get married again. He says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. In other words, he's saying they should do this to to prevent temptation, to prevent the adversary, that's the devil, from giving him an occasion for slandering the way of life. He even goes as far as to say that although Christians should not divorce, And even that they should remain married with unbelieving spouses as long as those spouses consent to remain with them. He says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, If the unbelieving partner separates, 
let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. What's he saying there? He's, I believe that's presupposing that remarriage in those cases is acceptable for the Christian. Lastly, many hold that Paul teaches here that an elder can never have been divorced. But does any divorce in the past disqualify a man from office? Is it is it that simple? You know, I, I don't know if, if you know me at all, you know I like things simple. Not oversimplistic, I hope, but I like things to be cut and dry and simple and clear-cut and easy. But sometimes we have to be careful trying to apply that kind of a mentality to Scripture, because Scripture oftentimes has a lot more nuance than we might be comfortable with. That would be simpler, but we can't just take the easy way out. We have to make sure that we're conforming our belief and our practice to what the Scriptures actually say and not what they don't. There are clearly instances in which the Word of God does permit divorce, although they are quite limited. The Westminster Confession of Faith sets this out, tells us the biblical conditions in which divorce is acceptable, although not required. Confession of Faith 24.6 says this, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is sufficient cause of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. You know, the Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism, they were written way back in the 1640s. You know, we often have this temptation and tendency, I know I do, to think, oh, you know, in the old days, the church didn't have all these problems. You know, people weren't as bad as they are now. But, you know, if you read old theology books, sometimes you read them and you, you, you would swear they were written last week. They have the same, dealt with the same problems that we dealt with. I don't know if you heard the first part I read there, but it says, although the corruption of man be such as is apt, it's his tendency, to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. In other words, people have from time past, ever since there's been people, tried to find loopholes and look for other things, other ways, other outs that God has not permitted. It's not a 21st century thing alone. It's also a 17th century thing and a 1st century thing and all these kinds of things. Now, divorce, I think, is a much more common issue than it used to be in decades and centuries past. And that's because divorce is simply much more common than it should be even in the church. That should not be the case. God, does God change? No, I hope you you know that and are assured of that. God does not change and the Bible says in Malachi 2.16 that he hates divorce, and we should take that very seriously. The Lord hates divorce not only because of the damage it does to families, to society, and even the church, but also because marriage, what is marriage? According to Paul in Ephesians 5, it's a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. That might be the most important reason of all for the sanctity of marriage. The church is the bride of Christ. We learn that even in the book of Revelation. Well, this takes us back to the wording, Paul's actual wording in our text, where he doesn't actually say in so many words that a man must only have been married once. That's sometimes how our brains read it when we read the text. 
But he says a man that's going to be an overseer must be a one-woman man. And I would say a man can be a one-woman man even if he's had a divorce in his past. If a man has a divorce in his past but is now married and has established himself as above reproach in that marriage and has been proven to be a one-woman man, I believe that man is in fact qualified for the office of overseer. The question that you have to ask as a church and as an individual is, what is the man's reputation now? What is the man's reputation? Is he above reproach now? Has God worked by his grace and sanctification in that man's life over the years? How has God done that? Have time and God's grace of sanctification healed that wound to the man's reputation? Do all now view him as above reproach? I believe on the basis of our text, then he may be rightly considered for the office of overseer. I have known such men. I have served alongside such men in churches in the past. They too can become trophies of God's grace and good examples to the flock. Well, what lessons are you and I to take from this text? We can certainly apply it to what we've learned here in our selection and ordination of elders. That is the first place to apply this text. But I think there are some important lessons for us, those of us who aren't even going to be elders, possibly. Uh, For those of us who are presently married. For those of us who one day, maybe we're not married now, but we're going to be. If you're a young man or young woman and you are considering marriage, In your future, maybe in your near future, there are lessons for you to learn in our text. If you're a Christian, if you're a married man and a Christian, are you the husband of one wife? That's not just a rule for elders and deacons. That is to be the rule for everyone who calls upon the name of Christ. Every man of God is to be a man, a one-woman man. Ephesians 5.25, Paul says this. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Malachi chapter 2, I've already mentioned that text, but in Malachi chapter 2, I'll give that to you for more homework uh, for the week to come, but in Malachi chapter 2, the Lord condemns a man for being unfaithful or dealing treacherously with the wife of his youth. Malachi two fifteen to 16 says this, the scripture says, Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously or faithlessly against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. This is the NASB. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So brothers, I ask you this evening, are you taking heed to your spirit in these things? God says it twice there in that text in Malachi. To take heed to your spirit. Are you a one-woman man inwardly as well as outwardly. Do you only have eyes for the wife of your youth? Are you engaging in the lusts of the flesh and using pornography? Young men, if you are using pornography now, you are training yourself in such a way as to make it harder for yourself to be a one-woman man when you are married. We should not be conformed to the world in these things. To you married men here or listening at home, this goes for the ladies as well in some ways. Are you allowing yourselves to become entangled in improper emotional attachments to women other than your spouse. This should not be the case. That is often the first step toward unfaithfulness in marriage, improper friendships. Take heed to your spirit in this manner as well. This brings to my mind the so-called, we used to call it the Billy Graham rule, now they call it the Pence rule. Uh, That's the rule where a, a married man 
Uh, usually it's a Christian man, but a married man must not spend time alone with another woman that's not his wife, not even in public. Many in our day, even in, in Christian books, have mocked this and criticized this rule as, as unwise, but I believe it's a wise safeguard against the adultery and scandal. The Bible in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, it tells us to avoid even the appearance of evil. We have to avoid even the appearance of evil. And so I ask, are you being careful to maintain a public testimony of being a one-woman man? That's what an elder, even a prospective elder, must do. That's what every Christian man should do. I believe that's what the Scripture calls upon us to do. Now, what if you're here, what if you're listening and... You're saying to yourself, what if I've had a, a, you know, some kind of sexual sin in my life, a scandal, a divorce in the past? Even if I'm not going to be an elder, what, what should you do? What does this passage have to say to you? Is there no grace? Is there no hope? For you, of course, I believe there is. The first thing that you must be reminded of in our text here is the grace of God and His call, His offer of repentance. If you're outside of Christ, if you're still in your sins, and the wrath of God abides upon you, what do you do? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10, he writes very bluntly about some of these kinds of sins. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. All kinds of different sins, including the ones that we would think of as scandalous sins. He includes all those and says, don't kid yourself. If that's still you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I ask, when I read that text, do you recognize yourself in that text? Are you yet among, right now, the unrighteous that Paul describes who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Are you are you sexually immoral or an idolater? Are you practicing false religion? Are you an adulterer or a homosexual? Are you a thief or a drunkard? If you remain in those sins, you will suffer the just wrath of God for all eternity for your sin and rebellion against Him. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? would be an awful text if he did. Paul doesn't stop there. That doesn't need to be the case. The very next verse, verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you. He's telling the church, and they would have known. They would have said, yep, that was me. When they heard this letter read to them, a bunch of them would have been like, yep, that was me before I met Jesus. He says, such were some of you. But you, what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were, past tense, some of you. So if if that is still you in some way, turn from your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and he will wash away your sins by his blood. Isaiah 1.18 says this, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what? We could use some snow here right about now. They'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Yeah, you get the picture. There's some stains that are really hard to get out. You ever spill grape juice on something? You might as well throw it away. He's saying, Jesus' blood can get even your sins that are like scarlet out and make them white like snow. When you come to Christ for salvation from your sin, Jesus, by his Spirit, washes and sanctifies and justifies you in the name of Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. He takes away your guilt and shame. He breaks the power of sin over you. He begins to transform you by his grace so that you may now serve him with joy. You know, we sang a song, Rock of Ages, and I always love the end of the first verse. He's, I'll just read it. I won't sing it. But he says, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood which from thy riven side which flowed, and here it is, be of sin the double cure. And what does that cure do? Cleanse me from its guilt, from your guilt, and from its power. He cleanses you not only from the guilt of your sin, but from its power as well. When you come to Christ for salvation from your sin, he takes away your guilt and shame. He breaks the power of sin over your life. He begins to change you by his grace so that now... By his grace, you can serve him with joy for the rest of your life and for all eternity. If you're a believer in Christ already, but the guilt of your past sin is still hanging over you and weighing upon you, confess it to God and receive his forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this, If we say we have no sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's both. It's guilt and it's power that he cleanses you from by his grace. Don't let your past sins keep you from a life of worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the present. You are saved by grace and not by works, but you are saved for good works so that you might now walk in them. Think about some of the examples that the Bible gives us, just a few, there are many more, that that God has saved and used despite their sin. The Lord Jesus Christ restored even the Apostle Peter, who denied him three times as he went to the cross. In John chapter 21, he restored him to his grace and restored him to office and used him for the rest of his life to preach the gospel. The Lord atoned for the sins of Isaiah's unclean lips. And then what did he do? He sent him out to preach. Isaiah went from saying, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, to saying, When God said, Whom shall I send? Isaiah said, Send me. And it was a difficult task, but God used him. The Lord Jesus saved Saul of Tarsus, as we read earlier in this letter in chapter chapter 1. He saved Saul of Tarsus. Saul called himself what? The chief of sinners. And yet God saved him and sent him to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Think about Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery. What did he say to her? Go and sin no more. She was forgiven and she was told to follow him. If God can do that for all of them, God can still use you and me. God is good. He saves all kinds of sinners by his grace in Jesus Christ and he is well pleased to use even us, sinners like us, for his glory and for the glory of his great name. Amen. Let's, let's pray.